If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inks, the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnBest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I'm excited for you to meet Vlad Magdalene, co-founder and CEO of Webflow, a company that is leading the no-code movement and empowering millions to create for the web without having to code. Vlad was born in the USSR and immigrated to the United States as a refugee when he was nine years old. Vlad studied computer science at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, as well as 3D animation and special effects at the Academy of Art in San Francisco. This mix of technical and creative disciplines helped him create Webflow, which brings the power of software engineering to designers through an intuitive visual interface. Webflow has grown to over 3.5 million users with a valuation of over $4 billion. And with that, let's welcome Vlad. Let's start with the basics. What's Webflow in your own words? And for everybody out there who maybe hasn't come across Webflow, Talk about the origin story. Where did you guys start? Thank you, Alexa. First of all, it's really great to be here. I'm honored to be here. Uh, Webflow is a professional website builder. Uh, so it allows people to create things with no code that typically software engineers uh, have to create. The kinds of websites that are, you know, like apple.com, stripe.com, webflow.com, uh, like really, really sophisticated websites that uh, in the past might have taken months to create. Webflow can do it visually uh, and allows designers to using their imagination and creativity, build things that are on par with something that uh, used to be done with code. And the origin story is actually kind of just that, the combination of my brother being a designer and myself being an early designer, and then learning how to code and seeing how difficult that translation layer was of like having a vision for something, uh, and then seeing how much designers struggled with working with either learning how to code or working with developers, having that whole like back and forth and handoff where there was a lot of frustration with like, this is what I imagine, this is what I want to happen, but this is what uh, how hard it actually is to build for the web. And uh, having that insight of, wouldn't be awesome if designers directly could use a piece of software and, and like a design tool and have that directly go live to the world uh, and have everyone uh, benefit from without this translation layer. Uh, and that was the original inspiration. Like, how do you, uh, how do you create something that, that is accessible to many, many more people uh, without requiring them to learn how to code? And actually had some inspiration from 3D animation tools. I wanted to be a 3D animator and work for Pixar. And, and I used and learned some of those tools, which were really rich and powerful. And then coming into web design and seeing that it was basically just Photoshop and a text editor and thinking, why can't the web design world be just as simple and just as powerful as these visual tools that animators use to create these incredible movies for like Pixar, DreamWorks, et cetera. So just wanted to create something very similar for the web. And here we are 10 years later uh, with uh, so many people using it. You had a really interesting wild start taking a huge risk, not only professionally, but also you were the sole breadwinner of your family with two little kids. Where did that conviction come from? 
talk through like what was the voice in your head that got you comfortable to go take this risk, especially when, again, you're responsible for your family? I think that the two words that I would describe that is some sort of exuberant optimism uh, or <laughs> raw determination to try to make something happen. By the way, that time when I already had two kids, so uh, my first daughter was three years old and my second daughter was a one-year-old, just had, had just turned one. That was the fourth time that I tried to start Webflow. There was three other attempts that all failed to a certain degree. Uh, some were, uh, you know, before I was even married, uh, that you know, where we ran out of money or I ran out of money. Second time when I was sort of moonlighting, uh, working into it, was which was my first like real job uh, out of college. And a third time was a little bit later, uh, also while I had a full-time job where it just, uh, you know, there were so many competitors coming out. This is around 2007, 2008 that I just kind of gave up and also ran out of money or, or ran out of like motivation to keep going. And the thing that made it really happen in 20, uh, 2012 was the fact that the web was starting to really break through and people started to see it as an entire platform, like people are starting to build apps on the web. So things like Google Maps, things like uh, even Gmail uh, had shown people that in a browser, it's not just presentational, but you could actually build an entire application in the browser and have it be interactive. And that's what gave me the motivation and the courage to say, like, actually, the web is now ready to build something like Webflow within the browser, which is a tool like Webflow requires uh, access to. Because uh, in the past, if you had to build something similar to it, it would have been like previous tools like Dreamweaver, uh, which were really big industry tools in the, in the early 2000s. Uh, but then sort of like faded out because uh, the problem was so hard technically. You kind of had to build your own browser uh, or some emulation of the browser. So it's the combination of that and a series of, I would just describe them as lucky events that gave me this push that uh, I just have to work on this, otherwise I'm going to regret it. One of those things was just a random letter that we got in the mail that gave me the trademark for the word Webflow. In one of the previous attempts where uh, Webflow had failed, five years earlier, we actually applied for a trademark and got denied because another company had the trademark for like web and hosting services. And then, you know, randomly through some, uh, I guess that company had gone out of business and something was cleared in the mail. Uh, I'd now moved cities twice, received this trademark certificate, basically saying like, hey, now you own the trademark for Webflow. So that was like, okay, something is meant to be here. And then I saw this video called Inventing on Principle, which is a conference talk that it was all about visual development. Like, how do you take the concepts of like, direct manipulation and things that artists and designers understand and map that to uh, code level complexity. And that talk was so inspiring that literally the next day, I was talking to my wife and my boss uh, about like, okay, I need to drop out or at least go start working part time on making, uh, trying to make Webflow happen again. Uh, and it was like that kind of exuberant optimism that we just have to make this real in the world that that gave me the uh, both the energy. And I think allowed me to convince my wife to take this big risk with two young kids, not really knowing where income was going to come from. It's not something I, I always recommend to people uh, because most often these things don't work out. So it's a lot of survivorship bias or it worked for me. It just happened to work for me. I just needed to make it happen. And the fact that I actually had two kids was more of a motivation. I want to go back to those early signs of product market fit. You were building something really complicated. Give us like the core lesson that you learned that other people could use in their in their in their companies and lives. A, it felt like we it took us a while to get product market fit because initially we thought that we had struck 
a gold mine because when we showed a demo of Webflow and, and created a kind of a sign-up list or a wait list, we got over 30,000 people to sign up to say like, hey, I want access to this. Uh, and then we were talking to quite a lot of those folks and they said, you know, they would pay for something like it. But when we actually launched probably four or five months later and allowed people to, you know, sign up and pay for it, I was shocked by how low the conversion rate was. I thought, you know, we were kind of had these dreams that, you know, maybe 10% of those 30,000 people would sign up to be paying users. And all of a sudden we have like a working business, but it was something like 50 people out of those 30,000 because the product was so limited still in what it could do. Like you could literally only build one page and you could literally, um, you know, you couldn't even have a CMS or a blog or uh, there were no like components that you can uh, sort of uh, like remix. It was essentially the only people it worked with was folks who had already worked with coders and were building websites for clients and had much smaller clients that they could reproduce that sort of value. They could deliver that value to without an engineer. But the folks who really, really, um, you know, latched onto this and started paying for it, like for them, it was life-changing because for them, it was like the superpower that meant that they can now do this themselves without relying on somebody else. And they started to build like little mini businesses around this because they could now go out and pitch themselves as like a solo freelancer that can build entire, you know, landing pages without multi-thousand dollar budgets, et cetera. I think the thing that we did really right there was to go really deep and serve those users really well. So instead of trying to get as many as possible, because we had this like big bucket of 30,000 users, but they, so many of them like dropped off very quickly. It was really going deep with each of those 50 that then turned into 100, that then turned into 200 and understanding what they really need, the folks who were using us like eight hours a day uh, as their main tool to build websites. That early community then supported each other and push us to build things that we didn't have yet that let's say WordPress or Squarespace or Wix had. Uh, and it was like the perfect early community that gave us like all these insights around like what to build next. Give us one or two things that you should always do and maybe one thing you should never do as you're managing and building a community. For us, community is our superpower. Like it is literally part of the product. The way that people onboard onto Webflow, even discover it, is usually through word of mouth. And there's a, a pretty high learning curve because you're essentially learning how to do web development. You're becoming a web developer. And there's a lot of complexity and a lot of things that you might need to do on a website. So community became the secondary product where you would use the product itself, but then you, you would actually rely on the community, A, to get inspired, B, to get support, C, to uh, see how other people did things. So I think the thing that we did really well is the fact that is to empower the community to share and remix things that can be created in the product. So essentially make it really frictionless and easy for to show off what you're building to then inspire other people by example of what's possible and how to recreate, uh, you know, certain complex things. Like we had people rebuilding apple.com and showing other people how they did like animations and interactions and certain layouts. And that worked way better than trying to create like education materials ourselves because the community could then be really interactive. Somebody could go to that community member and ask questions. And that person would then like kind of selflessly make another video to follow up and say, you know, this is how I thought about my process or um, how I, um, you know, solved a certain problem. The thing I would definitely never do with a community is to think of them as purely like a growth channel or some monetization. The second a community feels like they are there to be like farmed or monetized, 
then it no longer becomes a community. Then it's, you know, a set of users. And that doesn't feel like a genuine community. So really looking at making the community successful and engaged and how do you create human connections between those real actual people. You've talked a little bit about your ideal user profile and it literally, you serve everyone from individuals to enterprise. How did that growth happen? Like give us the one or two hacks to like that super growth that you've had. It has been a journey for us to, because building websites is like so many people need that capability, but it's really difficult to create a product for all people, right? Because if you think of Webflow as a website builder, we're a lot more of like a really powerful website platform or web development platform. If you, the closest equivalent, sometimes I make the analogy, if like iMovie was something like Squarespace or Wix, we're like Final Cut Pro or After Effects, right? You kind of use it to, you know, once you learn the power tools, you can, not only can you make like, you know, awesome wedding videos if you're a wedding photographer, but you can also create entire movies, right? Like that you see on the silver screen. That's the power of like the core designer that is our bread and butter. And because of that, our core user base has not been every person that, you know, needs a website, every individual or every designer. Our bread and butter has been like people who are building professional experiences. So our sweet spot has been everyone who is like in this professional bucket who is either building for their company or is a service provider like a freelancer or an agency helping companies like that from founders to growth stage companies to like large enterprises do more and more through visual development and no code what they would classically do through a coding platform or code directly and we found that there's like a really awesome virtual cycle there because the more you um, empower folks like freelancers and agencies to, you know, learn this new skill and build for themselves or for smaller clients, it helps them like develop this, uh, you know, more and more of a book of business, like clients that they're building websites for that then graduate to larger and larger enterprises and large enterprises. They're coming from like really arcane tools uh, that cost like millions of dollars to like run a website experience starting to use Webflow where they can move like 10 times faster with fewer people and put designers and their marketing teams in control. And they benefit from, because they need to go hire new talent that is familiar with Webflow. And it's it, it might take them like two or three months to train an existing designer to be like an expert in Webflow. So sometimes it's easier for them to go bring in freelancers who are have been building websites for smaller businesses and like hire them to be like their new webflow or visual development expert that like now is like the cornerstone of running their website so it's it's not like we have like one perfect target customer it's like anyone who really needs these powerful professional websites the number of different users there from brand designers to marketers to like CMOs, the chief marketing officers to uh, chief technology officers sometimes who are responsible for running like a website platform. It's kind of all over the place. The key shared goal, though, is how do you create a really powerful website that represents our brand and is not like a cookie cutter template? and doesn't give us like constraints that we have to like work around. And and the growth didn't come overnight. It was like this slow build of like having to, there's no place where you can go and just get convince a bunch of freelancers or agencies to switch to your platform. You kind of have to do this, you know, people first are students, then they learn, uh, you know, they have like smaller clients and they learn as a freelancer themselves. Then they graduate to building larger agencies. Then like, you know, marketing teams notice that and see that they can 
uh, by working with an agency, they, they can see that agency moving like 10 times faster than their internal team. They ask why. They say that it's because of Webflow. Uh, so then they kind of go, huh, maybe we should adopt that platform. And it's like this, a lot of word of mouth, a lot of other people convincing other people that there's a better way. And even that said, we're just getting started. We're, we're like less than 1% of active websites on the internet. I'd love to get a sense of how you think about the future of no code and what that looks like. What's obvious to you about where we're headed? Any predictions there? Code is still such a mysterious force. The best analogy I can think of in my own head is just mapping it to literacy. So if you think back 400 years ago, more and more people were learning how to read, right? That was becoming more democratized. In order to distribute knowledge, in order to write a book or publish anything, you had to be a church, a head of state, a really rich person to like afford a printing press or be able to like get those ideas out into the world. So it was like completely imbalanced to who could read and who could essentially consume and who could leverage the full power of that medium of like written thought, et cetera. And in software, we are still in that kind of deep divide. All of us, like there's still a lot of the world that doesn't have access to the internet, but folks who do have access to the internet, which is now the majority of the world, the vast majority only consume. And the vast minority has this like power of leveraging code to create things that other people see and use and distributing their ideas or actually benefiting from creating solutions that other people like makes other people's lives easier. And we're still in this like only 1% of the world is like harnessing the power of software. And through the next 10 years, if not the next five years, software is becoming more and more democratized. Like one part of that is no code uh, tools. Another big, big shift right now is AI uh, that it's not just the independent thing, but it can be leveraged by no code tools uh, to essentially help empower people to describe what they want to create and have that actually manifest as working software that then you could use either code directly to like tweak uh, what the code that the code that's generated without having to learn, go through years and years of training in computer science or uh, to kind of edit and improve things in no code tools like Webflow. So I think over the next five years, we're going to see a huge shift or a huge increase in the demand for how many people are creating things like websites and applications and software enabled solutions. It's not going to be just the, hey, like the way that engineers are building things right now um, is going to change. It's going to be a vastly larger amount of people who now have faster and easier access to creating things that classically have been categorized as software. I'd love your predictions of the intersection of no code and generative AI. Here's the funny thing about no code. No code is kind of, it's just generating code, right? It's a visual abstraction to code generation. So in in a sense, no code tools themselves are generative. They are generating code behind the scenes because they don't replace code. They're essentially like a higher level abstraction to uh, recreating code. And generative AI is just that on steroids, like where uh, if you can generate uh, more and more, if you can teach no code tools, uh, to both translate from code and back, which they already do, which is essentially what Webflow does uh, and other tools like Webflow do, you can now start to create even, uh, like I said earlier, even simpler interfaces 
to describing whether it's websites or software applications and and having more and more of those like tedious parts of building out a layout or like configuring a database or uh, connecting uh, certain parts of an app to another application in terms of integrations. More and more of the glue work is start, will start to become more conversational. A lot of the tedious parts, a lot of the repetitive parts are going to be delegated to generative AI can just generate them or tweak them. Our mission is to bring development superpowers to everyone. That doesn't mean that you have to like become a coder. Now you're developing software through either dragging and dropping or talking to uh, an interface to, to create another interface. And that that is a much more human-like approach. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Vlad, I'm going to transition a little bit to you. You were born in the USSR and you immigrated to the United States as a refugee when you were nine years old. Talk a little bit about what, you know, being a refugee in the United States, like what that gave you in the, you've clearly harnessed it. Tell us how you process that. I got a new lease on life, essentially, to come from a place where our family wasn't wanted. And, you know, the future was like really, really uh, seemed bleak to come to a country where like, by default, people believe in you. By default, people, um, you know, want to invest in you, even Though we came from the USSR where, you know, the vast majority of movies in the late 80s were like, the Russians are the bad guys. People who invested in us, who really believed in us, was so eye-opening that it made me want to be that for other people. Is there one thing that your parents did, if you go back, like one thing that you are absolutely going to do again for your own children to pay it forward? They really taught me the value of hard work. We would, every night through my high school years, get into a van at our family van at 8 p.m. and go clean a bunch of dentist offices because that was my parents' way of making more income. And, you know, at first we like grumbled and complained, but then it sort of became like this, you know, we are all contributing to helping the family stay afloat. It taught me that even when there's things that you don't want to do, there's so much value to being A, helpful for others and B, uh, like nothing comes for free. I never want my kids to like feel like something is being handed to them or that they know that somehow they can skip a lot of hard work to not only make a living, but build character and be responsible. You know, my wife and I have been like making sure that our, our kids feel a sense of responsibility and not just chores, but things that they are on the hook for. There's this amazing quote that you have. You said, when it comes to making hard decisions, I've leaned more on my morality than on my business sense. Tell me about what that means to you. Honestly, it means like staying within my integrity. It means doing the right thing by people. It means being proud of not just what I am able to change or accomplish, but how I'm able to do that. And I think that it really comes from having experiences that are like the opposite of that, where 
you know, I've seen like some decisions be made that are like way more callous based on, you know, what might be good for, for a business, et cetera. There's like obviously balance to this, but to me, like deep in my heart, I always think of like, what would I be proud of on my deathbed uh, of doing? And it always comes down to how you treat people, how you actually form relationships, what you value rather than like what financial metrics you, you know, accomplish. One of your co-founders is also your brother. One tip on how to have and maintain a great co-founder relationship. Ooh, so I have two co-founders. One is my uh, younger brother, uh, Sergi, and Bryant, who I worked with at Intuit. And it was really initially kind of scary to start a business with my brother. I actually had to convince him um, to initially, he was sort of like contracting. He kind of wasn't sure. The best advice I have there is share everything. Like to us, and, and the fact that we had such complementary skills, he was like the best designer I've ever worked with. Uh, and I think he would say the same thing um, uh, about me as an engineer. Uh, and we had so much respect and have so much respect for like each other's uh, skills that the other one doesn't have, that it was like the perfect compliment. And we had like built in trust where you, you know, have a lifetime of, you know, you have each other's backs. Uh, and over time, uh, the third, our third co-founder, Brian became more like a brother and Sergi became more like a business partner that the three of us kind of started to feel the same where there wasn't like a distinction between, oh, well, because Sergi's my brother, I operate with him differently. Or because Bryant is, you know, a co-founder that was a previous coworker, it like feels differently. So, so everything kind of turned into this, Bryant is a quasi brother and Sergi's <laughs> quasi co-founder only uh, dynamic where the three of us have uh, felt equal. Like everyone has a different experience working with family. I have six other or five other siblings or four other siblings, six of us total. And some of them I am very close to, but I can't imagine working with. Uh, whereas, you know, Sergi, it's, it's just like was a natural fit from the very start because of like the complementary skills and how much we had worked together in the past. So how do you manage your stress, right? You've been running this company for a decade. Give us like the one or two things that you do to just like actually get through the hard moments. They're almost all relational. So I have um, two best friends that I spend every Friday morning with. We sometimes call it a coaching session, but it's really a way to um, just share what's going on and how we can support each other. Like I cannot imagine going through the last three years without that kind of support. My wife is amazing. It's something where I have a partner that, um, you know, we went through a lot of ups and downs where Webflow is all consuming. And through a lot of conversation um, and uh, like partnership, it turned into a partnership rather than like Webflow feeling like a third stepchild that uh, is like vying for all this attention. I do some rituals like writing in a gratitude journal every morning that just like resets my brain or sets it up for the day. And at the end of the night, that has really helped me stay more grounded um, and just keeps reminding me uh, that even when there's downs to keep perspective, absolutely recommend like a peer group of other leaders or founders, a friend group that is there to support you through everything thick and thin. I'm going to move to asking you just questions. And I want the first thing that comes to mind, don't think twice. A book that has changed your life of any kind. The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. Why? It kind of reframes the purpose of a business from just growing shareholder value to advancing what the book calls a just missions, a mission that brings 10 times more value to the world than it does to you. And in our case, 
we hit that in spades. Like we are enabling people to make a living uh, most times to learn a new skill. Uh, and that is like deeply empowering. And, and then it outlines the second responsibility, which is to prioritize people in your business decisions and only last to generate revenue in order to do the first two things for as long as possible. Quote that you live by. Ooh, it's a Theodore Roosevelt quote, but it's really long. I can't, it's the man in the arena quote. You have to Google it. it. Uh, so just Google it. We all know it. I have it I sort of it. recreated in my office. And it just always reminds me that it's not the critic who counts. Um, it's like you just have to get in the arena and sometimes solve really hard problems and go through the thick of criticism. It's just a quote that, that keeps me going, especially in the tough times. Your biggest pinch me moment to date at Webflow. Oh, this was a few years ago. So the last all-team retreat we did right before the pandemic started, we were 200-ish people at the time, and we all flew to Mexico and had like this entire resort all to ourselves. And I remember kind of feeling inspired before to write a handwritten note to every single person that arrived there. And that's just something that I did every year. But a few days into this retreat, I think it was the second to last day, I woke up in my hotel room there was like 200 personal notes written back to me. And I literally, I remember like bawling, like I, like I got so emotional starting to read these, these cards that I couldn't, I couldn't even believe that it was real life. And I still keep those uh, in my home office and I go back to them quite a lot to get re-inspired around like why I'm doing what I'm doing, what my purpose is as a founder and as a leader. And I think it's going to take a lot to relive that. Vlad, last question. If you were to think about one category of innovation outside of anything that touches your business that you're just like really fascinated by or excited by, what is it? It has to be AI. Artificial intelligence and like large language models right now are this spark of creativity and innovation that kind of forces to rethink everything. Uh, not just rethink everything, but think how we can apply this amazing power to so many more things to make our lives easier. And, and to me, this is, I think it's going to be a category of innovation. I'm a very optimistic person. I know there's a lot of like scary stories about like, you know, robots taking over the world. I think this is going to be largely, it's going to give so many more people superpowers that's going to create um, many more ways of working. Vlad, and with that, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more, please check out webflow.com. And you can join us next week for Inc. The Founders Project with Alex Von Tobel. Vlad, you're a star. Thank you so much for being here today. This has been lovely. Thank you, Alexa. I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for the conversation. 